Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had a great time talking with Chris Bush about his recent book, Ideographic Modernism, China Writing Media, and that came out with Oxford University Press initially in 2010, and it was just released um, in a paperback in 2012, and that's the edition that we talked about today. Now, this is I'll keep this brief because the interview is quite extensive, but this is just to say that this is a really fascinating book um, of wide interest to the field of East Asian studies that talks about kinds of phenomena, sort of self-reflexive phenomena that involve kind of what we're doing, perhaps, um, as scholars of East Asian studies, uh, broadly speaking, in a transdisciplinary kind of context, when we write and think about and with East Asia. Now, the book focuses very carefully and very particularly on the context of late 19th century to about the 1930s. Um, But even though it's very carefully and I think very elegantly historically rooted so precisely, the implications here um, that Bush looks at are rather wide. Um, So it's a book that's going to be of interest, not just to those who are interested in the history of writing, the history of China, the history of modernism, but also those interested in the history of technology. There's a strong media studies and sort of history of technology um, aspect to the argument here. So it was really interesting to talk with him about it. It's a really fascinating book, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Chris. Hi, Carla. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. We're here today to talk with Christopher Bush about his recent book, Ideographic Modernism, China Writing Media. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Chris, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with us today. It's my pleasure. I'm a long-time listener, first-time guest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so Chris, could you start us off as is traditional um, for New Books in East Asian Studies by saying a little about yourself? What brought you to this field and what brought you to this topic in particular? Yeah, I think um, my uh, background in, in literary studies is kind of uh, unusual in the sense that I really didn't um, uh, begin to get interested in literature and humanities until college. Um, and even then, it was very eclectic. You know, I was sort of interested in philosophy. I was interested in a little bit in classics. I mean, film, lots of lots of different things. So I wasn't sort of an English major who then went to you know, get a PhD in English and you know, always knew that I wanted to study the romantics or something like that. Um, it was always very interdisciplinary and it was really only sort of over the course of graduate school that I started to, um, develop a clear sense of field. And, and that, what that field really became was sort of, you know, French and German literature in the 19th and 20th century with a sort of strong emphasis on, on critical theory. Um, which is in some ways very uh, you know typical of a certain kind of model of comparative literature, of course. Um, this particular topic emerged actually strangely enough, sort of out of that, right? So um, imagine you know I'm in graduate school in the 1990s. Um, I uh, feel that I'm a, a little behind on on certain cr- critical trends. I so I asked to do an independent study on, on Orientalism. 
Um, and I thought, okay, I need to, you know, read more cultural theory. You know, I'm reading all this Frankfurt School stuff, but I need to read a different kind of cultural theory. Um, and the uh, one of my professors who ended up being an important advisor for me said, okay, that's a great idea. I'll do that independent study with you. Start with this. And he gave me a copy of uh, Derrida's of Grammatology. <laughs> and I thought, no, no, no that's not, that's, you know, you're missing the point. What is this, you know, what does this have to do? what it is that I'm trying to learn. And, uh, you know, and I, I looked at the cover and of course, you know, there's a Chinese painting in, in seals all over the cover. This is the older edition, right? The newer edition has, um, has sort of Egyptian motif, motifs and Egyptian writing on the cover, but this is the old, uh, the old edition. And I thought, huh, that's strange. You know what? Uh, maybe there's some sort of connection here. Maybe I need to take this seriously. And of course that, that translation has a very long preface by, by Spivak, um, who really, you know, already in introducing that text really uh, makes some very interesting kind of cultural historical claims about the theoretical enterprise of deconstruction and what it means in relation to ethnocentrism and so on. Um, so, uh, you know, through this kind of, you know, interest in kind of very typical kind of complex, you know, sort of French-German high theory, I, and through this interest in writing uh, and, and the question of Orientalism, I sort of began to move in a more kind of cultural historical direction. That's kind of the or- origin of the project, I would say. Mm-hmm. So this was, um, you've talked a little bit in the introduction, to, or rather in perhaps the acknowledgments of the book, about the ways in which um, people who were influential at the stage of dissertation work helped you develop the project. But as we were talking just before, um, before we started the interview, you mentioned that um, the root of this book wasn't properly in the dissertation entirely. There was kind of an interesting transition from one to the other. And so could you talk a little bit about that transition? What did it involve for you to go from the stage of a dissertation project to this book? And um, what was notable for you along the way? Sure. Um, well, uh, that was actually, it was a fairly epic uh, journey, I have to say. Um, the, the dissertation was, I think it was, um, you know, it, it was fine. Um, I actually, you know, I actually got a, a prize for it. So it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. Um, but looking back on it, I would, I would, I would not allow a student to write a dissertation like I wrote. I would scold them if they tried. Um, for reasons. It, it was just, it was far too diffuse. It was historically far too broad. It was dealing with far too many ideas and so on. And really the, um, so the original project was really, I mean, in fact, the, what the dissertation became was a very broad study of kind of word image crossings in Western aesthetic theories in ways that involved notions about like the quote unquote, the Orient. Right. And so to give you a sense of how much broader this was, I mean, the earliest chapter, the first chapter in the earliest versions was all about the hieroglyph in German romanticism. And it had a lot of things about, like, you know, the history of Egyptology and how it was different from, you know, translations of Sanskrit and, you know, how hieroglyphic tropes show up in the Schlegel brothers and, uh, you know, this thing. Um, and then the end was, you know, tell, a lot of things on Telkel Maoism and, and talking, you know, trying looking at it in relation to cinema in the 60s. And so it was, it was very, um, very eclectic and really, you know, in, in my mind, it cohered. Um, but it included, you know, things from art history. It was French. It was German. And it was really, you know, almost two centuries that were being covered. Um, so I think, you know, ambitious and interesting and maybe thought provoking, but really not very much like a book. Um, because kind of too, doing too many things and not really um, leveraged against the existing existing argument strongly enough. So um, in the process of, of thinking about how do how do I turn this into a book afterwards, um, I had two 
I guess there are two motivators, which are, one was my, of course, my own sense that it was, once I got a little distance from it, that there was sort of too much going on and that it needed to have a clear focus. And then the other was, um, and this, you know, may be interesting to some of your graduate student listeners or, or some of your junior faculty listeners were, frankly, in a sense, the, the, you know, the harsh realities of the job market. It took me a very long time to get a tenure job. I got some very nice um, postdocs and um, things like that. So the um, the CV uh, looked fine, but I wasn't getting the tenure track job. And I and one of the reasons was it's precisely because I didn't fit a field very well. You know, there was no um, there's no job description that that asks for someone to do the the dissertation that I just described to you. Obviously. <laughs> um, and it also, of course, uh, that's it's odd for publishers as well, right? They think, well, what is this? You know, what field is this? What are the what are the books that you're arguing with, and so on? So I think um, partly of sort of schooling myself and thinking about um, how do you transform a, a very broad set of natural intellectual interests into something that, that interfaces in a, in a better way with existing scholarly discourse. And then, and then, just sort of my own sense that I, I wanted it to be sharper, you know, that I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be shorter, and I wanted it to have a clearer focus. And so, the the, the two things that really happened is one is I dropped all the, you know all the stuff that was sort of had to do with Egypt and, and Japanese art and all these other things, and really just decided it had to be about you know the reception of Chinese writing in the West. Um, and then number two is I just compressed the historical focus to make it really about modernism or these, you know, there's background material, but the focus is really on modernism and a fairly conventional historical set of dates, you know, sort of, you know, mid 1890s to around 1930. Um, and that really brought the whole thing into focus. Um, it, and worked on it for several years, and it was really only, uh, again, partly because I was on the job market, moving around a lot. So I was spent a lot of time writing job letters rather than, rather than writing the book. And it had to be good, I think, in the sense that it allowed the project to mature in a lot of ways. And it was about two years into working on this that I really then sort of got the, the idea of relating this to the question of technological media and thinking about the ideograph in relation to the phonograph, the telegraph, the cinematograph, and so on just something that was completely absent from the dissertation. Um, so in the end, it, ended, uh, it sounds very familiar. It sounds very similar, right? In the sense you say, oh, there's a dissertation about, um, you know, uh, oriental writing in modern European aesthetics. Um, and then the book's sort of about a similar thing, but there's actually almost no overlap in the end. Oh. <laughs> and I think that's actually really interesting. And one of the things, um, there are two things for me, um, in the context of this channel and just in the context of um, talking about this as you know as professional colleagues that this raises one I think you're making a point more generally um, that I want to really emphasize for any junior faculty especially who are reading this which is it makes so much sense to and this is my experience too to apply for postdocs to apply for um, these sort of sabbatical leaves because that process of application at least in my experience it sounds like this was your experience um, and in applying for jobs, it really helps you, it forces you to distill the basic structure and to elements of your argument in a way that you're not necessarily forced to otherwise, and that can really clarify um, the nature of the problem and remind you along the way that you're writing for a very particular audience who has um, an audience full of people with expectations for what a book or what a study is supposed to do and the kinds of um, material that it's going to engage with. And also, I mean, in the context of this channel, one of the reasons I'm really excited that um, you made time to talk with us today, uh, to talk with me today, to talk 
you know, with us in the general sense of New Books Network um, is because we don't often have a chance to talk about um, the kind of complete project that you're doing in the context of East Asian studies, or we don't often make enough of an opportunity to do that. And I think this is important because sort of a lot of what the book does, even though it does focus on, um, as you've mentioned, late 19th century, like early to mid 20th century, a lot of the kinds of phenomena that you're talking about and the sorts of relationships and ways of thinking with and writing with and writing about and thinking about China have strong contemporary um, relevance as well, I think. So this is really, in the course of our conversation, I think um, there's a lot of opportunity for us and for listeners to think about the ways that these kinds of issues and problems, though rooted in a very particular context, might have broader implications for helping us think about how we write and think with and about East Asia in general right now. Yeah, I really think, um, I, you know, when I was working on this, I really would just think of my audience as essentially people people in, you know, quote-unquote modernism, which uh, as a matter of practice in the United States tends to mean basically people who work on American and, and, and Anglophone modernisms, right? American and British modernism and do some, to a lesser degree sort of, you know, ang- Anglophone post-colonial literature. Um, but in fact, you know, I work mostly on, on French and German literature, uh, and at the same time, there's a kind of, there's an Asian component. In fact, uh, the press even lists the book as a book in, in East Asian studies. Here I am in the new books in East Asian studies. Now. Exactly. So there's this kind of, um, split where in a sense I'm trying to, you know, the, the arguments are kind of directed at, you know, the quote unquote modernist studies or modernism without any kind of national adjective, which always ends up being, you know, British and American, right. I'm sort of trying to, um, expand that field and have it think and uh, think of itself in more sort of, you know, thoroughly, um, you know, thoroughly transnational terms and bring a kind of, you know, richer, richer sense of global history to, to what modernism was. Um, but in in practice, in fact, often it's often people in East Asian studies who are most interested in what I'm doing, even though I'm really not an East Asianist. So that, that's actually kind of fascinating to me. <laughs> Great. So let's actually get into it. Let's get right into it now. So the book itself, so what I'll do is I'll set this up a little bit and then um, ask you some questions that come from the prologue. So the book itself focuses on the example of what you call the ideograph or ideograph, which way to... I think either would be correct, actually. <laughs> Maybe I'll just alter it over the course. <laughs> the example, let's say, of the ideograph right now. So Chinese writing as imagined in the West, right? The argument of the book is going to proceed on a number of different levels. I mean, one of the a few of the things that it brings out are, um, there. first of all, by just kind of making clear that there are lots of traces of China that have been read out of um, the history of modernism. And to sort of argue as well that a lot of the China that appears in or that we find in modernism has been dismissed as just kind of merely allegorical, merely ornamental, but in fact it constitutes a rich historical archive. Now a lot of writers, as you are going to argue here, um, and, and as is elaborated in the book, used China to talk about media and used media to talk about China. And specifically, the book is going to argue that the ideograph or ideograph um, was intimately connected with the question of media in various ways. And specifically, you look at um, several types of media in this context. And we'll, we'll talk about these in turn, photography, phonography, cinematography, telegraphy, etc. Throughout, the book considers the problem of the ideograph 
and as the intersection of three critical discourses. So you've talked a little bit about one of them as it kind of brought you into this field um, in in at, at the outset, so Orientalism critique or Orientalist critique, grammatology, and media theory. Okay, so if this is the broad scope, and, and I'll also mention for readers that there are some really important themes that recur throughout the book that I'll signal um, perhaps in the course of our conversation if there's time. And these really struck me. These are the themes of kind of the ways that thinking with and thinking about China really helped refashion notions of time and space and the importance of movement through both of them. And so we have time, space, and movement that really go throughout the book here. And so this is also really interesting, I think, for anyone interested in kind of the basic elements of um, historical practice and historical theory. Incidentally, okay, so let's get down to it. Now that I've kind of set this up um, for us, the book begins by talking about Kafka. So it begins in particular by talking about a very short text by Kafka called An Imperial Message, and it returns to this text several times thereafter, but also segues from this text into a larger discussion of the importance or the relevance of Kafka in this context. So could you start us off um, by saying a little bit about um, the importance of Kafka in this, um, in this case, and perhaps um, to the extent that you feel it's important or relevant, the importance of this short text an imperial message in particular to the context of the work that you're doing in the book. Sure. In some ways, you know, it it isn't, isn't it about Kafka, right? So in other words, what's important, uh, you know, I went back and forth about who to start with and sort of who to end with, right? So just to kind of, you know, return to the idea of process a little bit, there were, of course, you know, when, I, when, when the book Once Upon a Time began with the hieroglyph, it had a very different kind of <laughs> beginning. Um, and then when it sort of really became about modernism, I thought, well, I have to start, start with Pam because that's what everybody wants to hear about. Um, eventually, I worked my way towards Kafka because he seemed to me to be the kind of clearest example of someone where the, you know, he has these, you know, quote unquote Chinese stories, right? Where, the, where things are, where. He, the, the settings or the characters are in some way, shape, or form have have something to do with China, right? And this is not you know particularly controversial. I mean, it's something you know it's it's a, it's a known thing. We know that he read books about China and so on, and yet it's just outside of a handful of monographs or specialized articles on precisely the topic of Kafka and China. It seems to have had no impact on the way people think about Kafka at all. So what I was kind of really interested in was looking at him as an example of how critics choose choose to both ignore and acknowledge the importance of China in a given text. And Kafka seemed like a particularly good example for doing this because the whole Kafka interpretation is itself is so fraught with questions of what's out for that he writes seems to be an allegory, both the kind of a realist text and a kind of infinitely regressive allegory that can be made, you know, that can be read as a, you know, a 10 level allegory about a hundred different things. And so the fact that, that, you know, China features in a way that's both explicit and yet completely ignored by mainstream criticism seemed to me like that that would make it a very telling example. It's also, again, just as a kind of, you know, rhetorical process thing, it's a very short text, which is, which is convenient, right? It's something that, you know, if you haven't read it, you can read it in three minutes. Um, and to read, like, my, have 
Um, and then specifically that this dealt with the problem of, of messages, right? And how, how, um, you know, how, how communication takes place, um, and how communication takes place, right? Say how um, communication is not simply an abstract act in which you know one mind um, telepathically hands information over to another one somehow, but that communication takes place through you know in in space that it takes time that it involves things being written down or recorded in some way, but often being physically carried by someone from one place to another, and so on. And so as a story, it seemed to kind of nicely embody uh, the bigger themes of the book about how, um, how people use China to imagine the materiality of communication. So I think it was that, that combination of those two things that it, it fit with the kind of big conceptual questions about the materiality of communication as imagined through China. Then it also fit this kind of, it's all in the modernist canon and, and just, it was just doesn't, doesn't get taken seriously. Great. So, Chris, this actually is a great way to bring us into um, the the introduction to the book, and this is where you elaborate these connections, I think, more fully between China, um, the sort of materiality of the text, and writing in particular. So the introduction gives us a kind of historical background and a context for the central theme in the book, and this is the way that modernisms, what you call scriptive imaginary, and I love that phrase, wove together speculations about Chinese writing and about China and writing, and responses to technological media, all in this figure of the ideograph or the ideograph. And so we have these two threads being woven together at every stage of this argument. This is sort of China and or as writing and the, the kind of idea of or the material reality of Chinese writing or the idea thereof, and also um, this other element of technological media, which is as important, sort of equally as important. So can you talk a little bit about the connection between China and the idea of writing? Um, how you, you give us some of this background in the, um, in the introduction to the text, but how did these two things come to be so intimately related in the kinds of early writings that you give us here in this introduction? And I'll say, if you could talk, um, sometimes I'm losing some sentences. If you could try to talk right into the microphone, that would be great. And I'll hear everything that you're saying. I- Um, Well, it's, you know, it's a very, uh, of course, it's a very long history in some sense, but the uh, things really take off in in the the broader history I'm trying to tell in, in the late 18th and into the early 19th century, when, when the way uh, language is thought about in the European tradition um, becomes tied to ideas of national and cultural identity, right? The idea that each language is a kind of an expression of the, of the capacities of a, and, and the, the genius, as, as they used to say, of, of a particular people, right? Um, sometimes thought of in heavily racialized terms, sometimes in more loosely civilizational terms. Uh, but the idea is that the language is not simply a kind of, um, you know, the, the particular set of sounds or written symbols that any given people happens to use, and they could have used a different one and it wouldn't have made any difference. Um, but that language is, is a, somehow a, a, an organic expression of who, who a people is. Right? And so it's tied to issues of, sort of national, cultural, and in some cases, even racial identity. So in that context, the, uh, the, 
striking difference of, of Chinese from uh, you know any Western language becomes uh, trans is interpreted as a kind of symptom of a radically different way of understanding and experiencing the world. Right, so that when people look at Chinese writing, they don't just think, "Oh, isn't that interesting?" This is a, this is a different um, a different way of writing things down. Right, they see it as a very um, a powerful symptom of just a radically different way of thinking, uh, experiencing the world, remembering, of understanding, and so on. Um, and mostly, um, this is judged to be a negative. Right, the, the idea is that. The Chinese are sort of stuck on the level of picture thinking, right? Um, I talk a bit about Hegel, of course, is sort of an unavoidable example in this story, um, uh, for whom uh, hieroglyphs in a, in a different sort of way, but Chinese writing in particular, really shows that the Chinese can't think in terms of concepts because their, their, their thinking process always requires them to go back to visualizable, concrete examples, so you can't really have higher moral concepts like justice and virtue and so on if you're not capable of thinking abstractly. Uh, by the same token, your, your mathematics will be limited if you have to. Um, I can't remember if this example got cut from the book or not, but as I say, you know, you can't you can't do higher math if you if you have to draw a picture of one little one little crocodile for each you know crocodile that you're using. You can't about infinity and you know the, the sort of inherent. Right? So the idea that thought, you know, thought needs to pass through these kind of concrete images is inherently limited. Right? And this, this connects with all kinds of uh, often racialized uh, discourses about uh, the, you know, the limits of Asian thought, which is sort of you know, um, poetical and vivid, but um, you know, extremely limited in terms of its, its political and philosophical and moral potential. Um, and so but what I noticed essentially was that, that there's, there's an enormous homology, let's say, between this kind of critique of the, you know, the quote-unquote oriental mind as it's constructed in the, in the 18th and 19th century and exactly the kinds of things that people say about you know, what, what's wrong with the mass media. In, um, in certainly, you know, it's, it's in the reception of film in the early 20th century. Um, even, you know, maybe we could think about today with the internet or video games and, uh, you know, through even you know, the rise of e-books e and so on. Um, it's, it's not exactly identical, obviously, but there was, there was a large overlap, right? And so I got interested in this kind of broader history of how shifts from one medium to another cause people to make value judgments about the inherent uh, pros and cons of particular media, right? The question of sort of how they were used or who was using them, but that certain certain media required certain kinds of thoughts, right? That it imposed certain limits and made certain things possible. Um, and once I thought about began to think about this analogy more, what I discussed as I got deeper into the archive, I discovered it wasn't simply an analogy, but that in fact, very often in, in the late nineteenth or early twentieth century, when people were attempting to describe Technologies, they would turn to to metaphors and, and anecdotes about Asian writing systems to explain what it was that was so interesting or peculiar or, or often bad um, about this this um, these new technologies. Um, and conversely, that uh, then often then in discussions of the Orient, that people would sort of invoke tropes of mass culture and you know the benightedness caused by cinema and so on and so forth. Great. 
Great. Now, this is great because it brings us into, um, really into the meat and potatoes, um, to use an analogy that's pre-lunch right here, because we're talking, for listeners, talking briefly before lunchtime, my time. So I'll, I'll use some food analogies here. So let's get to the meat and potatoes or the Trader Joe's Penang curry and basmati rice um, of the, um, which is what I'll have for lunch today, of the situation. Each of the four chapters really looks at um, the, the way that, as you say, Orientalism, the ideograph and media theory grew up together and looks at the intersections um, of these concepts, but in different ways. So each chapter looks at a different conception of the ideograph and the uses to which it was put in texts ranging, again, from the late 19th to um, sort of early to mid 20th century. And each chapter focuses on the work of a particular author and its engagement with a particular example of new media. So each chapter looks at the precise way that the question of Chinese writing was relevant to this author or authors and defines the model of the ideograph at work in their texts while also sort of looking at the ways that this model was related to a particular way of thinking about and with a technological medium. So we have Ezra Pound and Paul Claudel with the image looking at um, sort of photography and so on and so forth. And I'll take us through like Colonel Mustard in the kitchen with a candlestick. Each, it, it's actually one of the great things about the structure of this book is that it's so clearly laid out like this. So let's look at, um, so the chapters look in turn at um, a number of different authors. They look in turn at uh, ways of thinking about and with the ideograph in terms of image, inscription, mimesis, and history. And also they look in turn at the technologies of photography, phonography, cinematography, and telegraphy. So we'll look at these in turn. Now, the first chapter um, looks at Pound and Claudel, for the most part, and also Fenelosa. Um, it looks at the importance of the image as it formed a certain mode of understanding the ideograph and Chinese writing, and it looks um, in turn at the importance of photography as a medium that helps work out and work through these ideas. So if you can get us started, um, can you talk a little bit about the context of um, imagism? Um, how do Pound and Fenelosa and their work here exemplify, well, first of all, what is imagism? For Maybe for listeners who don't know that term, what is imagism and how um, are you using the work of Pound and Fenelosa um, to talk about the importance of imagism in the context of the, uh, the ideograph here? Sure. Well, um a, uh, I guess you could define it as a poetic movement or poetic trend in the early early 20th century. Um, it's uh, somewhat important in England, especially important in the United States. Um, it really is, is defined by, uh, well, in a kind of dictionary definition of it, or encyclopedic definition of it, defined by a, a focus on uh, removing all the rhetorical clutter and uh, usually syntactic complexity of uh, residual Victorian tendencies in poetry and giving us kind of clear, plain, simple, direct, immediate language. Um, now, this, this is a very open-ended kind of project. Um, and since the, the history of imagism in, a, in a, any kind of strict sense is actually quite uh, short-lived, right? There's a, there's a group of uh, poets of which Pound is, is really the most crucial. He's kind of the mediator between the Americans and the British, among other things, um, who 
engage this this program, but often for very different reasons, and they have very different things in mind for what it means for something to be direct or for something to be concrete or something to be simple and so on, right? So there's a kind of, um, there's a common enemy of uh, great excess um, and a common desire to do something that's that's new and fresh, but the particulars of this are, are, are a little uh, vague. It, and this is, you know, and, and like most avant-garde groups, it doesn't, they don't hold together for, for terribly long and Pound himself goes off on his own very, very quickly. Um, but what's important about this in, in relation to China is that the both Chinese and Japanese poetry serve as crucial examples for these poets of how to do things better. Right? Um, and so that, that involves a very um, selective sense of what Chinese and Japanese poetry are. Right? Um, it, it wasn't certainly wasn't a given to the average Western reader in the, say, the 1890s that Chinese poetry was defined primarily by its lack of ornament and literary convention, um, and that, in fact, it was always, you know, direct and vivid and could be understood by anybody, right? It's obviously a very particular construction of poetry. Um, so Chinese served as a kind of a, a model, um, but then also... The, not just particular poets, but the, the very idea of the Chinese writing system served as a model in part under the inspiration of Ernest Fenelosa, who you mentioned, whose uh, essay, The Chinese Written Characters, a Medium for Poetry, was edited and published uh, after Fenelosa's death by Ezra Pound himself, and quite heavily edited, in fact. Um, and the idea was that if you looked at, at the Chinese writing, you would see a, a, a form of writing in which the original visual foundations of thought and experience had not been effaced. Right. So the idea is that in, you know, in, in modern language, we have a, we have a kind of rationalized relationship to experience, and so we use words as these kind of abstract counters. But we don't. We, we've lost a sense of their etymology. We've lost a sense of their 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 how it is that they, they connect us directly to the world, right? That they're simply, um, they're circulated and exchanged, but they don't have any direct force in and of themselves. And that by, in the example of Chinese writing, you see a form of writing, which that's it's not possible for that originary um, imagistic uh, pictorial quality to be, to be effaced. Um, now this is obviously, this is not like a correct reading of the way Chinese works. Um, but it was very influential for these writers. And you can see how this kind of echoes the, what I was saying earlier about the sort of 18th, 19th century sense of the Chinese as people who were sort of stuck on the level of picture thinking, right? It kind of takes that description and keeps it, but reverses the valorization and says, you know, is the, the Chinese think in pictures, isn't that wonderful? You know, we should be more like them, um, at least when we're writing poetry. <laughs> Right. Now, one of the really interesting things that you're doing here is you're arguing that actually contrary to what most people might expect when thinking about imagism, right? It's ultimately about the limits of language as a medium of seeing and showing and as a way of making things appear. And this is, I think, is really interesting. And I think we'll get to this um, over the course of talking about this chapter. Now, the, this is a chapter um, in which like many of the other chapters, what, one of the things that's really striking, at least for me as a reader, is the importance of movement um, in many respects. So you're arguing that movement and dynamism are among the most recurrent themes in the way Fenelosa presents Chinese. You talk about the idea of the immobile empire of the Orient. And then you talk about the notion of another of this chapter's central uh, thinkers or the central figures, Claudel, the notion of 
the creator as the prime mover. So this um, just signaling the importance of movement actually lets me ask you if you would talk a little bit about this other figure um, who's really central to this chapter, and that is Claudel. Um, can you talk a little bit about Claudel's work and the way that it's, it's central to the kind of argument that you're making here? Sure. Um, Claudel. Uh, Claudel was an interesting figure because he is he's someone who was fantastically important in his own lifetime. Um, was uh, he really emerges from uh, kind of you know late nineteenth century French intellectual and cultural milieu? I mean, his, his sister Camille Claudel was uh, famously a student and, and lover of Rodin. Um, if, if most of the people I meet, if they've ever who are not in French. If you've ever heard of Paul Claudel, it's as it's, they know him as the character who's the brother. And he's uh, <laughs> very sympathetic. And in fact, he, he was not a particularly sympathetic character in real life either. Um, he was sort of ardently, um, militantly Catholic and full of uh, you know, anti-Semitic opinions and has terrible things to say about women and so on. And so he's, he's really kind of fallen, uh, his stock has fallen a lot. Um, and, and in some ways for good reason. He forms a kind of fascinating bridge between the kind of late symbolist tradition, um, you know, kind of Rambo Mallarmé, and in fact, he, he you know he knew Mallarmé and, and salons and and so on, and the kind of the modernist tradition. He was a contemporary of, of the Dadaist surrealist, and in fact, the um, the surrealists you know wrote polemics against him. He was important enough that you know that they bothered to write against him, um, in part because not only did they that they dislike his his poetry um, and his and his politics, but he was uh, really kind of blessed by the state. He became um, an ambassador and uh, traveled many places around the world, uh, kind of representing, you know, greatness of French culture in some official sense. And so he's a perfect target for the surrealists in just about every respect. Um, but one of the places that he's later Japan, and you, you might think that, you know, given his politics, that he would be, um, you know, uninterested in learning from these ex- experiences, which which is the case with many of the places in travel. Um, but in fact, uh, he had an enormous love affair with specifically with Japanese culture, and then through that, uh, sort of fell in love with the idea of an ideographic writing system and began to apply some of those principles to his own writing, um, including doing kind of uh, visual. Uh, visual poems in which he breaks the spaces up among words and a lot, wrote a lot of his poems by hand and so on. Um, this more or less contemporaneous with um, a lot of experiments in um, Cubist poetry and Apollinaire and so on and so forth. So it's actually uh, comes up like, uh, you know, it's both kind of a multicultural and very uh, avant-garde in its, in its form, even though he himself uh, doesn't seem to fit either of those, uh, either of those descriptions very well. Uh, yeah. Asia that really changes the way he he writes, and the reason he's an interesting example in this chapter is because, um, without sort of going into to excessive detail about it, because of his particular religious views and his own his, his own kind of complex personal philosophy of, of allegory and, and the way experience is allegorical and so on, he's actually opposed to the notion of visual immediacy in any way. Um, he, he thinks, you know, photography is kind of a bad medium. He thinks painting for most of his life is a bad medium because it forces us to focus on the appearances of the world as opposed to, you know, the, the higher spiritual realities of, of Catholicism. And what I try to show in this chapter is that, um, and this is, you know, partly based on the work of French scholars as well, 
is that this encounter with, with Asian writing really changed the way he thought about the value of visual immediacy. And so it allowed him to kind of back into a sort of um, valorization of the materiality of language in a way that hadn't been possible for him before. And in fact, he even changes his views on painting and photography and other visual arts as well. And this is actually one of the really interesting things about this chapter is that you're showing um, the kind of both rejection of, but also imitation of photography as a model of vision um, and sort of a particular kind of consciousness um, related to that, that's both um, sort of shared by the uh, imagist poetics and by Claudel's poetics. Can you um, say a little bit more about the importance of photography in this context? Sort of what's the larger context in which, um, and without, you know, I'm not asking you to give a history of photography in this context. I mean, that would be totally unreasonable, but can you say basically a little bit more about this connection between um, what's going on in this chapter with these um, different writers and photography in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, these writers write extensively about photography, but the comments they do make about photography really, I think, are very illuminating about the way they think about the relationship between image and experience in general. Um, I think it illuminates their their thoughts about poetic language in general terms, but then it also um, intersects in interesting ways with the things they have to say about, um, you know, ideographic writing as they they imagine it. So the idea was, as as I uh, hope I was able to set up before, is that Pound seems to represent a case of someone who would valorize visual immediacy in the extreme. I mean, the, the movement's called imagism. Claudel would be someone who, as a matter of principle, uh, is opposed to the idea of pursuing visual immediacy because he's, he's, his work is all about the, the spiritual and the transcendent and that which cannot be concretized and is not present. Right? Um, and the idea is that if you look at more closely at their theories of poetic language, but also what they have to say about um, Chinese writing and Chinese-based writing systems, and then also then photography in turn, that what you see is, in fact, that they're both deeply ambivalent. And so what I try to show with respect to photography is that this is actually uh, representative of a broader modernist ambivalence about photography. Um, The idea that um, there's this machine which can capture an instant um, is on the one hand, it is uh, you know very exciting, and it seems to to produce all kinds of new aesthetic possibilities. Uh, at the same time, it um, it's it's a machine that seems to um, uh, destroy the notion of artistic intention. Um, it's done without any kind of consciousness or mediation, supposedly. Um, so it really uh, it creates a, what I think is a kind of a rich, a rich debate about the value of visual immediacy, right? So Pound, for example, uh, you know, says at one point, you know, any, any damn fool can shoot off a Kodak. So, I mean, if there are some statements which read out of context that would suggest that our, you know, the highest goal of poetry would be to present just to give you the image of what is in front of you in, in its presence, you know, without commentary, without rhetoric, without literary convention, but to just to, sh- to make you see, you know, as, as Conrad famous, famously says in uh, his, his preface that's became so important for Impressionism literature, that 
there are other places in which he says merely making you see is something that a machine can do. It doesn't require any artistic talent. It doesn't require any intelligence. It's not even human. It's just a kind of passive receptivity that it turns out can, you know, animals presumably have it. And now it turns out that there's a machine that can do it for you. Right. So we get this kind of strange thing where in certain respects, photography becomes a model for what modern art ought to be, but also model for what modern art must not become. Right? And so I try to then show that sort of both the people who seem pro pro imagistic immediacy and anti imagistic immediacy are in fact both ambivalent. They're just differently ambivalent and they kind of come at the, come at it from different directions. Great. Awesome. So thank you so much. <laughs> okay. So as we move into the next chapter, we're also moving from looking at writing as image to looking at writing as inscription. And this chapter focuses on a really fascinating work, um, a work that I actually was not aware of that I loved, loved, loved your description of. And this is a work by um, uh, an author, Victor Segalan, on that's modeled on Chinese steelies. So can you introduce him for our listeners? Um, I mean, he was sort of interesting, you mentioned here, because he's apparently the only one of the writers um, that we are looking at who actually learned Chinese and one of the only who's actually spent some time in China. Um, and he produced this really, really fascinating work. So um, can you talk a little about a bit about him and um, his work on the Steelies in particular? Sure. Yeah, he's a kind of fascinating larger-than-life figure. He's um, also French, uh, but I can say that work of, of prose poetry, the, um, the style collection that you mentioned. But he worked in a lot of different genres. Um, he, uh, he wrote kind of amateur ethnographies, wrote literary criticism, he wrote things that are kind of considered science fiction in retrospect. He wrote some novels. Um, he collaborated on two libretti with Debussy, which were never produced, um, but one, one on the life of the Buddha, uh, an opera, Siddhartha opera that Debussy was thinking about doing and did some musical sketches for. Um, so he really, it was a kind of a, a multi character and he, he traveled really all over the, all over the world. I mean, it's, I won't sort of bore you with a list of places. This is someone who died in the 19 teens um, and grew up in a, in a kind of a rural area in France. He's extraordinarily well-traveled. I mean, you know, Tahiti and Africa and all over East Asia, including Tibet and, the United States, and um, he really just sort of traveled everywhere. And he was kind of a um, uh, someone who tried to, to come uh, develop a sort of own literary aesthetic and, and even a kind of a aesthetic philosophy based on the idea of cultural difference and diversity. Um, and his early works are all about Tahiti. Um, uh, but later he uh, writes a whole series of works about other places, but the majority of them are about China. And he spent many, many years in China. Um, spent a, he was actually a personal physician to Yuan Shikai's son at one point. He was a doctor by training. That's how he got to travel the world at first was with the, with the Navy, with the French Navy as a, as a, a naval doctor. Um, he had an audience with the emperor at one point. I mean, he really, um, he wanted archeological digs. He, he knew all the, the, um, all the newest developments in, in Chinese archaeology. So he, you know, he took China quite seriously, and he really spent a lot of time trying not just you know, sort of hold up in, in the French Quarter uh, in Beijing, really traveling all over the place, you know, on horseback, and really made a whole series of, of trips uh, very far west. Um, and, you know, wrote about these things in journals and then sort of tried to find ways to transform them into literary genres. And so what's strange is that in some ways he's very, um, 
he's very, very deeply committed to this notion of um, celebrating cultural diversity in ways that, in fact, have made him a kind of hero to a lot of French postcolonial writers. Uh, he shows up in as a, as a you know, approvingly in writings by writer uh, like uh, by authors like Edouard Guisson, Katibi, and and so on. Um, but his own, uh, you know, somewhat like Claudel. Uh, with whom he had uh, a lot of disputes, but also a lot of, of overlap. Um, his own politics, in many ways, were extremely reactionary. Right? Um, his his celebration of diversity meant that um, you know people should be. He was sort of an anti-modern. Right? So he uh, he thought Chinese culture was wonderfully, particularly Chinese, and that's why he was in favor of maintaining the imperial system. Um, he thought that you know gender difference was good because it's difference. Uh, so feminism was bad it was a leveler of difference, right? It's, we saw sort of modernity as a kind of leveling out of difference. Um, so what he tried to do in, in, in works in various ways was find kind of literary forms that would somehow preserve the, the essential, essentially exotic character of whatever it was that he was writing about. And I say essentially exotic because it's, he, he's very explicit about this. He has a long essay called Essay on Exoticism, which he never finished. And this is the text that sort of made him beloved various post-colonial theorists, um, in which he says that there's a superficial exoticism, which is based just basically on the fact that something new or unfamiliar to you, right? Um, and he, he has nothing but negative things to say about what he calls, you know, the literature of pith helmets and camels and uh, travel literature in the vulgar sense, right, as he would have it. But that there's a kind of a deeper um, experience of estrangement and, and alterity that happens when you encounter cultural difference that he wants to somehow try to find a formal way of, of preserving. Right. So not just telling the story about, Oh, I've never eaten this before. And you know, the women were looking really different there and so on. I mean, he has nothing but contempt for colonial literature as he sees it, but to try to come up with some sort of aesthetic form that would convey the, this, what for him is that, you know, this deep experience of, um, of estrangement and difference. And so basically every work he does is in a different genre, right? He doesn't sort of write a whole series of novels about the different places he travels. Each place he goes, he sort of kind of comes up with a new form. Right? And so what he comes up with for these styles, this idea of a series of texts that are kind of modeled on uh, Chinese uh, inscriptions on these sort of ancient uh, Chinese statues. And they're, they're specifically um, texts mostly taken from a variety of historical sources, but also in some cases from, um, you know, like the Book of History, for example, um, or, or um, there's a one from the I Ching, uh, and so on. So these are things that not, wouldn't necessarily actually be found on, on actual stelae on the roadside, right? But they're sort of inspired by um, the aesthetic of stone monuments. And then uh, he lifts from these various classical Chinese sources, epigraphs, and then writes prose poems that have some sort of subtle, tricky relationship to these epigraphs. So he actually had to know Chinese in order to write this. And there's all sorts of complicated intertextual games going on between the epigraphs, which are in Chinese, and then the little prose poems that he himself wrote. Great. And one of the things that you talk about um, in the context of talking about this work that's really crucial is sort of his practice as a kind of translation. And so I won't ask you to elaborate on that, but rather to signal for listeners, there's a really wonderful um, account here that's of interest to anybody interested in translation theory and that the relevance of translation to these kinds of issues. And this issue of translation sort of brings us into your argument at the end of this chapter 
that writings on the steles were much more akin to phonography than photography. And this was in part because of their illegibility. So can you talk a little bit before um, we move on to the next cases to the importance of phonography here? So what does the phonographic technology have to do with this argument? Good. Well, so there are ways in which uh, argued that Stella are related to, to phonography. One is, is in just in a kind of a concrete material sense they are they are also inscriptions right that these are these are characters that are uh, you know literally in- inscribed right it's not sort of a, a, a metaphor of theory to say that they're inscribed they're chiseled into a surface right um, and this actually matters because he talks about this a good deal in the preface as a kind of um, as the birth of this kind of impersonal text right he actually says that once the character is is inscribed it, it is it has no longer uh, it is no longer written by anyone, right? That it, it can, it becomes illegible and it can only speak to itself and so on. And he has this kind of very dramatic idea of a kind of aesthetic autonomy of the Chinese character once it has been inscribed. Now, what does this have to do with phonography? Because, you know, obviously stell don't sing, right? Although in fact, there are lots of musical stell in the text and there are in fact lots of musical elements in the text. It's himself a, an amateur musician and was friends with a lot of musicians. I mentioned his connection with Debussy earlier, but that aside, um, it really has it connects more, I think with the imaginary of the phonograph, right? So this is something that again, requires a bit of kind of media history reconstruction. Um, so in the same way that I tried to show in the first chapter that photography produced this sort of ambivalence about the aesthetic value of visual immediacy, the phonograph on the one hand seemed to, um, uh, you know, uh, allow uh, a kind of, hu- you know, the presence of the human voice among other things to, to live on, right. In a way that was, was again, sort of exciting. It seemed to sort of seem to, to revivify um, things that might have otherwise been lost. Uh, at the same time, people presence. Um, and there's a whole, uh, sort of metaphorics of these kind of, you know, mute inscriptions, right? It was one of the things that's so different about the phonograph as opposed to the photograph is it is that the photograph looks like the thing that it's a representation of, right? It's a very uh, obviously basic, obvious thing to say about the photograph, but the phonograph by contrast is a bunch of grooves in a surface, right? That no one can read, right? It, they don't, they don't have a uh, re- relationship of resemblance to the thing that they are a record of, right? They're simply uh, traces that that are, are illegible to, to any person, right? Now, the, by means of a machine, you then reproduce them, and, they, and then they, they can then seem very human, right? But it's a very different sense of what it would mean to, what it means to write something down, right, for a kind of technological writing down of, of some sort of lived experience. It produces something that is absolutely um, illegible and does not have a relationship of resemblance or similarity to the thing that it is supposed to represent. And so, the, you know, the argument is really that it's this, this discourse about phonography as a kind of um, illegible material trace, right. That, um, that then can somehow write, mediation produce a kind of ghostly uh, revivification of, uh, of uh, what it was, what it was, what is the trace of that that's where the connection with the stell is. Right? Okay. Uh, so that we have sort of human voices, um, you know, being emitted from the stell. Right? That's, uh, that's not the case uh, as a rule, right. rather that you have these kind of silent, legible texts 
that um, produce a whole series of reflections on what, what writing is and how it might work. Um, and I guess the last thing I know, I've sort of gone too long, but just say that, that part of the reason that this is in terms of the, the development of the book, that this chapter was important for me is that when people talk about modernism in China in general, and, and, and 100% absolutely, or 99% absolutely, let's say when they talk about modernism in Chinese writing, everything is as repound, as repound, as repound, right? There's a lot of this. And I would literally get this. I'd say, well, I'm working on this book on, you know, the ideograph and modernism. And, they, and they, people would say, oh, right, it's repound and all that. <laughs> literally sort of get that. You get that as a reaction. Say, well, look, you know, that book's been written. You know, why are you doing that? Right. Um, and Pound was not a dissertation at all. I mean, Pound was someone I essentially, uh, through by having conversations like that with people, thought, okay, I have to have to have something to say about Pound because that's what everyone thinks of when they hear this topic. So I have to, in part, situate what I'm doing in relation to that discourse, right? Um, because in fact, everyone assumes that I'm just going to repeat things that people have said. Ideograph. <laughs> and in fact, there are quite a few books that basically repeat each. other on this topic. But one of the things I really wanted to, to do was break away from that, not just because it was, you know, you know, to say that, Oh, I'm doing something different and it's not so pound centric, but one of the effects of this kind of pound fanalosa centrism is that people imagine that everything that has it, everything in modernism that has anything to do with China, especially if it has something to do with writing is all about pictures. It's all about the image, right? About the immediacy of the image. And one of the things I try to show in the book is in fact that there's lots of different aspects to the way people think about Chinese writing, including this relationship to phonography and the, the gestures of inscription and, um, you know, the aesthetics of stone monuments. And so on the idea of, you know, a chiseled stone, that's very un, unimagistic, right? And you have a kind of a silent, illegible inscription in stone. That's, that's anything but fresh visual immediacy. And in fact, one of the really surprising things or connections between um, these topics and China in particular that comes up is in the next chapter, where you move to uh, a relationship between an author and China um, that you mentioned here is infrequently, if, if ever, remarked, and that is references to China and Chinese writing in the work of Walter Benjamin. Now, for Benjamin, as you mentioned here, um, and I'll just sort of set this up and, um, and and ask you a little bit about it, because I don't want to take two hours of your time, but I do want to uh, sort of work through this. Um, so for Benjamin, China and Chinese writing in particular, as you put it here, are consistently associated with embodied cognition and with, and here's here's uh, what's one of the really important points, forms of bodily mimesis through which it circulates. So copying, um, embodiment, and, and so forth. These become really important themes to, as you argue, ch- um, the relationship of China and Chinese writing to Benjamin's work. Now, you, you mentioned that these are most notably for him articulated in his work on cinema. And so can you talk a little bit about that um, as, as our context for this chapter? The connection between Chinese writing and cinema or cinematography um, for Benjamin. Uh, well, the, um, uh, maybe uh, it's easiest to try to make this connection, let's say, with an, with an anecdote, right? Which is um, there's, a bit of a, of a, there's a very short story, uh, not even a story, it's a sort of short text. It's hard to know what to call some of Benjamin's writings uh, called Chinese Curios, um, which, which I talk a bit about in the book. And he, he makes a, a contrast between um, two ways of experiencing the landscape, right? And he says one is you can fly over in an airplane. Um, and, and, and when you do that, you get a kind of perfect vision and you can see everything and you have a kind of thing. The other is you can walk the road and you see the landscape from this situated perspective. 
right? You can't see everything at any one time because you're part of the landscape, but you, you have a kind of a, a deeper relationship to the place because of it. And he doesn't use the word deeper, but it's, it's kind of a distinction between different forms of experience that he famously talks about and on some motifs in Baudelaire, right? But the idea is it's a more, um, you may be less conscious of what it is that you're taking in, but it shapes you in some, uh, deeper way, right? It's, you get less information, but you are yourself formed or, or shaped more by the experience. And so he makes this distinction between these two ways of crossing landscape and then at the end and the title of this thing strangely is chinese curios it's canadian savage and like chinese wares they call it chinese curios in the, in the existing english translation but it could just be chinese goods um and this has nothing to do with china seemingly and then in the end of this very short it's a, just a paragraph or so he says and this is what we have in china where the tradition of copying texts by hand gives people a kind of lived relationship to the history of their own language and the history of their own literature and so on so Chinese writing comes for him a kind of a, 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 an example, but then also a, a metaphor for the sort of more lived, embodied relationship to experience. Right? That it's not—it's less about a, a masterful uh, perspective from above, and more about the kind of the going through the actual experience of something in a way that shapes you. Right. Um, and this is particularly important, I think, with res- with respect to language. Um, that then sort of try to relate this to Benjamin's theory of mimesis and how it relates to language and so on. And that's a lot of uh, sort of I think too much too much to get into here, right? But the, the way I try to show is that these seemingly offhand remarks to China, in fact, you can find uh, I think you know I found about, I don't know, about twelve or fourteen of them throughout his writings, and that they're, they consistently make that connection, right? That when First to China, it's not just kind of a random Orientalist fantasy where one moment he's talking about Chinese torture and the next moment he's Chinese um, talking about opium or something. I mean, it's very specific. He's almost always saying the same thing, which is that Chinese culture has a different relationship to representation and has to, and that it's more mimetic, right? It involves this kind of imitation and copying that changes the person who does the copying, right? That you become involved in the thing that you're representing. You don't simply represent it from a, a distance, right? From a position of mastery. You're actually um, come part of the tradition um, of, the repre- of, of the very thing that you are representing in some way. Um, and this is something that is then um, sort of, you know, leads us to the more general uh, importance of mimesis, in Benjamin's thought, particularly uh, in cinema, um, just to kind of jump ahead and kind of connect the dots a bit, the other the other pincer, uh, pincer as it were, chapter um, is this this kind of meta how uh, China is everywhere in modernism, and, and people often don't take it seriously, and it's very different. From someone you know, someone like Pound or or, or Claudel, or you know, the, people write articles and in some cases a handful of books about oh, yes, you know. Kafka's interested in China, but let's not make too much of it. I mean, he's, you know, he never went there and, and it's China after all. And you kind of people backing off it in various ways and saying it's not that interesting or important. What's strange about Benjamin is that as far as I've been able to tell, literally no one has ever written anything about this. Uh, he's obviously the, one of the most you know, heavily scrutinized figures in, in all of modern thought, film, film history, art history, political theory. You know, he's, he's, uh, you know, there's no comma, you know, in his archive that, that someone didn't write a dissertation about it at some point. And yet here we have 
you know, the, these many, many references to China throughout his work. And I have not been able to find anything written about it with the exception of one online posting about an interview he did with the American Asian American film actors, Anna Mae Wong. In fact, <laughs> I just, that it was a, a graduate paper that someone put on. Now it's possible that someone's written. I mean, there's so much written about Benjamin, but I've given talks about this in a half a dozen different places, including a lot of uh, places. Benjamin scholars were present. Um, and I said, please, if someone's written something about it, uh, and no one's been able to come up with anything so far. So in any case, it's certainly, it's, it's very seriously undernoticed, <laughs> uh, not completely unnoticed. So to kind of try to put a bow on that, I mean, in the, the essay that work of art in the age of mechanical reproductions, it's, it's been known for so long, right? It's now has a better translation. It's technological reproducibility, but for known for so long as the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, he talks about Chinese painting and the idea of, and, you know, having a relation or enter into it. And he uses as an example, a Chinese artist who enters into his painting and so on. And again, no one's ever commented on it. So that essay has got to be one of the most widely, um, widely taught and widely interpreted short texts in all of them. I mean, up with you know, Freud's essay on fetishism and and so on. It's just sort of overinterpreted, and no one's ever commented on that aspect of it. And so there it is, right in the heart of the canon, right, like right in the middle of it. And the idea is, I show that far from being an offhand reference, if you look at it in the context of this whole kind of system of references, which he makes over a period of decades and all kinds of different writings, um, it's it's doing the same thing with China once again, right? Identifying it with this kind of mimetic capacity, which is very different than um, representation as kind of mastery from a distance. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Now, as we move to um, sort of the conclusion of our conversation, what I want to do just to make sure that we don't um, completely skip over it is just kind of very briefly mention what's in this really wonderful fourth chapter and and just ask you um, one question about it. So, So, and then we'll close up. So this chapter um, looks at the relationship between China and the emergence of global telecommunications. And we see here um, an increasing connection between China, the idea of China, and um, the importance of distance and space. Now, the text itself, or the chapter itself, looks closely at Paul Valeri's response to the Sino-Japanese War, the late 19th century, and his work, The Yalu, that's really written um, kind of in this context. You're talking in here, uh, or you argue in here that his articulation of a crisis, of a modern crisis of the spirit, and this is a kind of goes back to the shock that's in the title, is defined by the transformation of history, as you put it, into something that we can no longer define in opposition to an ahistorical orient. And so this is really um, an important transformation. Space in the way we understand China becomes really important here, and you weave this together into an argument about the importance of telegraphy as a um, as a technology. So um, I've said I've put out that context so that I don't take up again too much of your time. And just to ask you, is there anything in particular about this chapter that you feel is especially important, um, especially crucial to mention? And what about this chapter is most important um, for you, in in your opinion? I think. One of the things, something that, uh, you know, I finished this chapter last and I think it became part of the, the, the germ of, of really the next book project in some ways, is uh, how um, you know, taking seriously the 
present stage in the history of modernism changes the way you in some sometimes fundamental ways, right? So a lot of the things I've been talking about are sort of uh, quite theoretical. They're about, you know, this figure is like that figure. And so there's this kind of relationship of homology and we can see how the imaginaries intersect and so on. This is a very different kind of thing. It's very concrete, which is, Valerie has this essay called Crisis of the Spirit, which he published shortly after the First World War, and it's constantly cited, um, and I see it, you know, even today cited in works by people outside of French literature as an example of how World War I uh, provoked this great crisis of confidence in Europe, how it was kind of this blow to, to Eurocentrism because it showed that Europe couldn't manage its own affairs, and um, it really uh, destroyed any myth of progress that might have been left, and so on and so forth. And what I try to show in this chapter in relation to Valérie is that um, a lot of the themes that he articulates in this essay, he actually articulated much earlier um, in 1895 and specifically in relation to the Sino-Japanese War. Now, also, I should mention in relation to the Spanish-American War, right? I don't, I don't face that completely, but he actually has more to say about the Sino-Japanese War so that there are these, um, what we could think of as sort of, you know, early anti-colonial wars or anti-Western uh, things that sort of, you know, re- um, redefined uh, the significance of the West on a global scale, right? Um, and that they they provoked in him, and he, he writes about this very explicitly. He says a, a sense of crisis. He realized that what he, that he, it made him realize that he was a quote-unquote European and that he was that in, in his innermost self and that what he thought that was wasn't what he, what he had always thought. And that the news of these, dis, these seemingly distant wars um, were like a shock to his body, you know, um, a kind of virtual, he refers to a virtual image of Europe that he had held within himself, but had not until then known. This is a, um, to say, you know, so when we tell the story of modernism, I mean, one of the very conventional ways to do it is to say, oh, you know, World War One, you know, sort of shattered conventions. And so then everyone started doing avant-garde art, right? Um, and then we have all this modern literature in the 20s. Um, and people acknowledge, okay, well, you know, cubism is largely pre-war affair and so on. But but really all this significant, the sort of historical context for it is always presented in terms of uh, the world wars in some ways. But if you cast a wider eye at the world and look at things like the Russo-Japanese War and the First Sino-Japanese War and, and um, uh, you know, Ethiopia, the Ethiopian-Italian War and, and, and so on, um, you'll see that the people who would later become modernists or be identified with modernism were making were, were having those crises already uh, in a lot of cases, you know, well before the First World War. And then in a lot of cases, this had to do with the things that were going on with Asia. Um, so uh, that, you know, that to me was an, is an important takeaway. Now, the, the connection to media obviously just has to just very quickly is that, you know, that this information gets to you immediately. And he talks about this, uh, very, again, very explicitly, you know, it's not just the fact technology, the telegraph has become a global network, is that when, you know, when something happens in East Asia, it's known about more or less instantaneously in Paris, right? And so there's a sense that the world is no longer in this kind of uh, set of uneven uh, spaces that, that don't that are, live at different historical moments, but that they exist more or less simultaneously, right? And that things that happen in one place in the world will affect things elsewhere in the world in ways that, that have not been the case in the past. It's not only causes you to maybe have to think about the future differently, but it also causes you to reevaluate what the past is. And so what I, I want to try to argue is that this is actually really important to, mod, to modernism. And that in some ways, the modernists themselves 
much more aware of the real, let's say, simultaneity of China with their own world than the people who write about modernism today are. Great. Well, Chris, thank you so much. This has been um, so much fun to talk with you. It's such a great book. And what I want to do to close is just to ask you a couple of questions that point us, um, point us forward. So, um, first, I mean, this is sort of one of the classic questions, um, but I want to put a little twist on it. Is there anything about the book? And the book is extraordinarily rich. There's tons of stuff that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to mention that you think is particularly important about it and that you want to make sure listeners know? And related to that, um, perhaps, the book came out a couple of years ago now, and I'm um, we're talking about um, a new paperback edition. In the interim, so in the intervening time between when it first came out and as we're talking about it now, are there any ways um, that you think differently about any of the material in the book? Or are there any sort of revisions that you've made to the way you think about this material? And I mentioned earlier the question of question of audience. And I think in some ways, you know, my own, I mentioned my background in kind of French and German literature and critical theory. And I, I think my own training was really in, in close reading and in aesthetic theory. And in some ways, you know, my, the audience for this project, for the book is a book, but just the audience in the sense that when you spend years writing something, you're sort of implicitly arguing whether they're talking to you know, more or less imaginary set of people um, that probably have some relationship to people you actually know. Um, it's really sort of people from that tradition and trying to um, push it towards um, a different sense of history, right? Of, of understanding modernism in, in, the, in a global historical context that would make those theoretical and aesthetic issues look different, right? So that in some ways that the book is very heavily rooted in a tradition of kind of, of close reading, of uh, difficult recursive theoretical questions, so on, and trying to um, you know inch towards um, a sense of, of history that would uh, be. A- acceptable to uh, people who work in that tradition, right, tend to be very skeptical of um, you know, the notion of historical context, for example, right? They say, oh, you're trying to reduce the text to a, history, you know, a, a symptom of historical context and so on, right? So I think it's very heavily rooted in that tradition and kind of inching towards history. I think with the project I'm currently doing, for example, it's really much more broadly sort of about history and then moving towards uh, aesthetic form and aesthetic formalism. So I think that that is... Uh, uh, you know, I know maybe hopefully not just a sort of a biographical thing, but maybe something, you know, people are working on their own dissertations and their own books and so on. Think about the ways in which your audience real or imagined really sort of shapes the way in which there are certain things that you, you feel you need to work hard to explain or to justify or to argue. And then other things that you can just take for granted. Um, and so I think, I don't know that I would necessarily change it, but I think that something that I would, I would certainly do differently today um, is I would, I would work less hard um, to justify uh, talking about historical context. Yeah. Well, and so now you, you've mentioned um, briefly when we talked earlier that the roots of the current project in some ways come from the material in the fourth chapter. This is the telegraphy chapter. Um, what Can you talk a little bit about that project or otherwise um, what project is inspiring you right now? Sure. Well, the um, the, the current uh, book project is called is tentatively uh, titled "The Floating World: Japanese Aesthetics and Global Modernity," and basically the idea is to look at the um, the history of Western uses of, of 
Japanese aesthetics or the notion of a Japanese aesthetic from the mid-19th into the late 20th century at a series of kind of selective moments. And the, the, sort of the major three moments really are um, the very famous instances, the, um, the reception of the uh, Japanese woodblock prints and its influence on Impressionist art, um, the haiku and its transformation in modernist poetry, and then uh, the 1980s and um, Tokyo as a site of kind of you know, the exemplary postmodern city and the way, it, the way it's used in, in cinema. Um, and those are kind of the three uh, main body chapters. And there's a sort of longer historical theoretical introduction that goes with it. And the idea is that um, the the critical discourse around these things is really, I think, stuck in a kind of um, critique of exoticism, right? That we um, people say, you know, how is it that the, the, that uh, Westerners thought about Japan in you know 1905? You can sort of go out and find a series of novels, you know, out of the broken butterfly or whatever, and then it turns out that it's it's a it's a terribly uh, you know sexist representation of Japanese women and and, and so on. Um, and these these things are all true, and it's important that 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 these studies have been done. But I think that they've been done. Right? And what I've been trying to to do with this project is really takes again they sort of take seriously the idea of specifically. Japanese modernity, not just for myself, but to show that it was in fact taken seriously by people in the period. Right? So you can see how this kind of builds on aspects of the ideographic modernism project, but it's very different because obviously um, the international awareness of, of China's relationship to the question of modernity is very different than the that Japan relationship to modernity uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and so the idea is that in some ways by, by focusing critique of exoticism or the critique of aestheticism, they were actually sort of reinforcing the notion that um, Japan is a kind of a distant fairy land that doesn't really have anything to do with the modern world. Um, what I tried to show is that, in fact, these, these artists who were so influenced by, by Japanese art were uh, extremely aware of and in many cases, uh, kind of freaked out by, but in other cases, inspired by the idea that Japan was modernizing. Um, and I think what makes this very different than, than, than the first project is it, it really very has quickly moved to the idea that this would be a way to think about um, modernism as a global phenomenon, right? So the point is not simply to sort of correct the history of um, how it is that people in the West thought about Japan as a particular place, but to show that why Japan was so important for them was that it suggested the possibility that the, that the whole of the non-Western world might eventually become modern and that it might eventually, you know, uh, be, be historically coeval and so on and so forth. Right? And so that, that representations of Japan, influence of Japan in the arts, in fact, becomes an occasion for thinking about the prospect of prospects of globalization and of a kind of global modernity. Great. Well, I'll look forward to talking with you again when that book comes out. Um, so in the meantime, best of luck with your new project, Carson. Thanks so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you very much, Carla. It was a great pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.